Welcome to Starry and Decisis. My name is Patrick. I'm here with Max, and today we'll be discussing decriminalization and harm reduction in BC. We'll be talking with Sandra Kohanchu, a co-executive director of HIV Legal Network, Nathan Crompton from Vandu, followed by several members of Hard Law, a harm reduction and decriminalization advocacy club here at the law school. As always, we would like to acknowledge that this episode is being recorded on the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people and the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanch nations, and our role as law students as being part of a colonialist system. The toxic drug crisis and the associated policing has disproportionately impacted Indigenous peoples, and we really need to be doing a lot more to address this because what we're currently doing is failing. For a more fulsome discussion of land acknowledgements and what they mean to me individually, as well as Starry and Decisis as a podcast, please feel free to go back and listen to the first part of episode one, which was released last week. So yeah, without any further ado, let's get started. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. If you wouldn't mind just starting by introducing yourself and HIV Legal Network to our listeners. Yeah, I'm Sandra Kahanchu. I'm the co-executive director of the HIV Legal Network. Uh, We're a human rights organization based in Toronto, Canada, uh, but we also work globally on issues related to drug policy, HIV, um, people do sex work, LGBTQ2S. Mm -hmm. We've had conversations with um, some policy advisors in Health Canada over the years with the just Um, with people in Justice Canada as well about the parameters of drug decriminalization. Um, But we haven't been in in contact with the BC government about their specific exemption request. So how do provinces and municipalities go about applying for an exemption? And what is that process of approval like? Yeah, so um, as your listeners probably know, there is a section in the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act that allows the Minister of Health um, to exempt any person or class of persons from any sections of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. This is Section 56. It's a provision that you know broadly allows supervised consumption services to exist without the threat of criminal prosecution for um, simple possession or trafficking. Um, and so um, the Health Canada or the Health Minister can grant an exemption under Section 56 to exempt an entire province or municipality or any class of persons from the section of the CDSA that makes it a crime to possess drugs for personal use. So I understand that's how BC um, framed the request and they the, it, it was granted exemption that way. The the exemption can look an, like anything. Like there's, it's a very flexible tool, I think. And um, I know from our work with other civil society organizations that we wanted the broadest exemption possible. Um, I sit on the Toronto Working Group and we didn't want a threshold specifically because we were worried that the threshold would, if it's driven by police, it would be too low. And so I understand based on conversations with friends and colleagues in BC that the threshold and the question of the quantity of the threshold is really driven by police concerns about having too high a threshold. So hence a 2.5 cumulative threshold, which I understand is far too low for many people who use drugs. But there's nothing in the exemption that says you need a threshold. Um, You could grant an exemption without any threshold. And right now, police operate without using a threshold. I mean, they look at other indicators of of trafficking, possession for the purpose of trafficking without using any quantity. So um, that's the approach that I know that we are pushing for, we have been pushing for in Toronto, not having a threshold. Not that thresholds are inherently bad, um, because sometimes they reign in discretion of police, but we are concerned um, with seeing what's happened in BC that a threshold will be defined in a very, very uh, harmful way that, you know, captures people who use drugs in the way they 
the way they purchase aren't necessarily for the purpose of trafficking, but might capture them if it's defined too low. So kind of to that point, what factors do you see as playing into why this two and a half gram threshold is inadequate to, to capture many drug users in BC? Well, I mean, this is based on, again, conversations with uh, people who use drugs and the, the organizations work with them because they're the experts about their drug use patterns. And I know that consistently we've heard that, you know, people living in remote and rural communities, that is too low a threshold for them because they might buy in larger quantities. People who don't want to be, who might have mobility issues and not want to constantly purchase, um, that might be too low for them because, again, they'll buy in larger quantities. People don't have access to a seller who might be able to sell them in frequency, might buy in larger quantities. There's lots of reasons why people buy in, in bulk, and I know that happens here in Toronto as well. So um, my understanding is that it doesn't actually capture the way people use drugs in real life. And the concern is the police will now actually engage in what we call net whining. So, you know, people who had previously been caught for simple for trafficking before might actually now be perversely caught under this low threshold um, because the threshold is so low. And that's a concern that advocates have been expressing um from day one when they've talked about decriminalization, this idea of net widening. And and if you don't define decriminalization right from the outset, it could actually lead to more harm to people, towards people who use drugs. Mm-hmm. So kind of turning back to street-level enforcement, how do you see this exemption changing how the police might interact with the public? I mean, my hope is that it gives pe- police one less tool to harass and surveil people who use drugs. My concern is that in many of the police forces that I've heard from, they still see themselves as playing a role for referral. Like they're still the gatekeeper or liaison for drug services, referral to social services. I don't think the new legislation or the exemption necessarily precludes them from surveilling or interrogating people who use drugs. I think it will really, the devil's really in the details. Um, this is something we're sort of trying to navigate here in Toronto. Like, even if there's no threshold in Toronto, at what point can police actually stop you because they suspect you of a possession for the purpose of trafficking? What are the indicators that they can use? Um, and do they still see themselves playing a role in terms of liaising and referring you to health and social services? So my hope is that they play a much lesser role and some of those resources get diverted to community groups that can actually support people in a meaningful way. Um, but I don't know. I think it'll, we'll, we'll have to evaluate how it plays out in BC. And so are there any specific areas within this exemption that you think could have gone further in terms of achieving its goals? Um, well, I think it should apply to everybody. I, I think it's tragic that it doesn't apply to youth. Uh, um, I don't know why that exclusion is. I know there's a different criminal legal system for youth. But if you think that stigma and prohibition is bad for people who are 18 and over, why, why wouldn't the same principles apply to youth? Um, I think the threshold of obviously we just discussed it is far too low. I think the cumulative threshold is too low. I think there should just there should potentially um, be a higher threshold that reflects actual patterns of use and consultation with people who use drugs about what that threshold looks like or no threshold. Um, and I think it should apply to all drugs. Like so, the the current um, exemption applies to four categories as I understand it of drugs, but it should I don't see why it shouldn't apply to everything. Again, the principles of stigma, the fact that drug prohibition doesn't work. We understand that and we accept it. Why is it in, uh, so limited? And obviously, I would like to see this. It's an incremental step. It's one province in, in Canada. And obviously, I think as a symbolic move, it's 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 helpful because it'll show that the sky won't fall in. And hopefully other jurisdictions like here in Toronto or Ontario or elsewhere will follow. And maybe the federal government will even be brave enough to pass a national law that repeals Section 4 um, of this Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Um, I think that probably is its biggest impact, like showing that people won't necessarily, people will, will benefit from this 
uh, exemption and this guy won't fall in. Yeah. So in BC, obviously, this exemption only applies to personal use, but are there any efforts being made back out east to broaden this exemption to people who are dealing not directly for financial benefits, but to kind of sustain their own use, given that there really is no clear division between this this false dichotomy of the dealer and the user? I, I hope so. I'm part, a part of a coalition that developed what we call the Civil Society Platform on Drug Decriminalization. And what you described, we call necessity trafficking, which is like selling to support your own use, um, to provide a safe supply, um, and for your own drug use costs and for subsistence. Um, so the, I know that's also part of the lawsuit of the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs. I don't know if you've spoken to somebody from there, but they are seeking um, an amendment to Section 5, which is the trafficking prohibition that allows for necessity trafficking. And I hope, ideally, we see a world where drugs are just regulated um, and there's consumer protection for everyone, like alcohol is regulated. Um, but in the interim, um, I'd like to see simple drug possession and necessity trafficking decriminalized. Because like you said, the line between someone who sells drugs and uses drugs is very blurred, especially for people living in poverty. Um, and that's a really um, poor use of resources to criminalize those people. Yeah. So given that and given those limitations, what metrics should we be looking towards to gauge the success of this law? Like a dramatic decline in arrests for simple possession, obviously. Um, a dramatic, hopefully not an increase in trafficking possession charges, like a no net widening. Um, I hope that there's a good evaluation in people in terms of people's experiences of law enforcement um, and people feeling less stigma and less barriers, fewer barriers to health services because they're not under the constant gaze of law enforcement. Um, but yeah, I think the key metric is just a seeing a dramatic decline in arrests. Not only arrest, though, I think I hope the evaluation also involves like just engagement with police, um, because beyond arrest, you know, I know that the exemption says you don't get your drugs confiscated anymore. Um, but obviously, there's other things that can happen, like surveillance, interrogation, harassment. And I hope that also comes down and we hear directly from people who use drugs, how they've experienced police over the, over the next three years. So wrapping up here, is there anything else that you think gets lost in the discourse that we should be keeping top of mind when we're discussing these kinds of issues? I think one of the things that I think sometimes gets neglected is beyond the criminal legal consequences of, of prohibition, there's all these other consequences. Like I, I talk to families and mothers who use drugs and like, you know, the, the, the stigma and the branding of a person who uses drugs means you get your child apprehended and you see mass apprehension of especially racialized children, indigenous and black children from their families because of drug use. Um, the impacts of, for people in prison who don't have access to health services and harm reduction prison, uh, services behind bars, um, like discrimination in terms of housing, employment, like it just, the net of the criminal legal system is so wide beyond arrest. So um, it's some of those things that I think I didn't meant maybe mention earlier, like a success point would be beyond not having those arrests is just some of the lessening of that stigma and discrimination in all aspects of people's lives. That's one thing I think um, sometimes doesn't get discussed as much. And then maybe just one more thing is that like, I think a lot of people got really excited about police coming out and saying they support decriminalization, but I, I can't, I, I feel like I always have to remind people like the devil is really the details. And so if police say they're not going to, they're not going to arrest people for drug possession anymore, but they're going to focus all the resources on trafficking. You know, think about what are the concerns about net whining. Um, think about when police say that they want to be the person that refers people to health services. Think about what that means in terms of police still being in people's lives 
and what power they'll still have over people who use drugs. Um, um, and so, yeah, I think it's just maybe when, whenever there's conversations about decriminalization, look a little bit more closely and see how it plays out like, like you're doing right now about the BC exemption. Well, thank you so much for coming on and discussing this with me. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, uh, and I've definitely learned a lot. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. Hey, folks, this is Max, and I'm back with Patrick, and we are continuing to talk about the new decriminalization exemption in BC. So again, just to recap, this exemption, which will be in effect by the time this airs, essentially allows people in the province to have up to 2.5 grams cumulative of opioids such as heroin, morphine, fentanyl, crack and powder cocaine, meth, methamphetamine, and MDMA ecstasy. So we have a special guest with us today to bring us a Vancouver perspective on this issue, and that is Nathan Crompton. Nathan lives in Vancouver on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. He is a community organizer with and part-time staff at Vandu, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. He is an editor at The Mainlander, an online publication covering local politics and social issues. So yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Nathan. Great to be here. Tell us about how folks in your world are feeling about this exemption coming up. I think that people are conflicted. There is a sense of of accomplishment or victory in the basic sense that at some level of discourse, there's the idea of decriminalization and a kind of move to recognize that the war on drugs has failed, both in what it tried to do, but also in in, in the knock-on effects of the war on drugs. So in that sense, it's a step in the right direction, but also there is a sense of bittersweet or just bitter because the it's a it's it's a double-edged sword that comes with a lot of loopholes and just inadequate thresholds which i think we can talk about i mean how i'm kind of seeing it what you're saying is like nitpicking around this 2.5 grams thing is is still going to lead to so many um, complications for for many vulnerable people yeah exactly and i think like there are so many reasons and it would you know take a long time to list why a, a person would be above the threshold even the city and the province did their own studies that showed you know average possession would already put a bunch of people above the threshold you know our actual studies through you know BCCSU and other organizations did pretty comprehensive field research and found that you know people's daily use and people's possession is like well above the, the threshold. You know, like during the drug poisoning pandemic, epidemic crisis, you're having patterns of usage where people are wanting to buy, if they find a safe supply, they're wanting to buy more of it, or they're, they, you know, they're getting their hands on some for their friends and, and family or loved ones. You know, people, a lot of people have experience with friends and family overdosing. So, you know, people are taking measures to get their own safe supply or or safer supply. You know, if you find a dealer who's able to check their substances and then you're able to check the substances, there's all these reasons why you would want to accumulate that. Um, in rural 
parts of BC. I mean, people aren't going out every day to buy substances. I mean, people are, you know, driving long distances and buying substances that will last them longer. Um, so these thresholds really don't address basic questions around, you know, the diversity of, of usage. And, you know, people in either cities or in rural settings with mobility issues are certainly not going to be doing a daily hustle, you know, to, to, to keep themselves under the threshold, you know, so there's a lot of concern just around, around the basic question of if this is about decriminalization and if there is a consensus that decriminalization is a good thing, why would the thresholds be so low? You know, you're actually creating, um, you're actually giving more clarity for more prosecution, possibly, you know, you're, you're telling, you're basically telling cops to go out with scales and find people, you know, who are above the threshold. And that this is a big problem because in a place like Vancouver, we're in the midst of uh, like a pro cop uh, mentality and with the, with the shifting tides with the municipal election. So we're about to see another hundred officers get hired and, you know, crime rates are at historic lows. So, those hundred officers are going to be out looking for, you know, like scratching, you know, <laughs> scratching their ass, looking for things to do. And of course, you know, now that they have this directive, you know, you're going to anticipate a possible increase in drug um, charges. The other, the other issue is even if people aren't charged, you could have a situation where there's now this, green light to go looking for the threshold so you get more harassment more stop and frisk type encounters with police and like i said just by virtue of there being so many more police uh, it won't be surprising if the numbers go up yeah one thing that really kind of struck me when kind of looking at this law was the the lack of differentiation in this threshold for different substances right and so obviously some substances are more concentrated to than others and so do you think with this that kind of pushes people to have more concentrated substances so they have a longer supply for sure yeah i mean the war on drugs has always you know the law the iron law of prohibition is that you know both the drug trade and consumers of drugs are looking for, you know, increasingly sophisticated ways of evading law and order measures. So fentanyl, you know, wouldn't have, you know, been, you or I would never have heard of fentanyl, you know, were it not for the war on drugs. This is a cumulative threshold. So all drugs combined has to be below 2.5 grams. In, in some ways, this encourages you know, people with diverse use patterns can be put at more at risk for, you know, having to prioritize one substance over another. You know, it's going to break people's patterns. And that's always a bad thing if it's not within their control. So much of all this makes me think about how we put, you know, very regular drug users and especially people whose it's very evident, you know, physically and how they present, etc. Put these people in such like one-dimensional boxes, like, oh yeah, well, 2.5 grams is enough for any given one moment. But it's like, like you say, you're not considering family members, you're not considering 
their whole general lifestyle, if they found this safe supply and they want to get a lot for their own safety, like all these kinds of things that I think general mainstream culture just is so good at quickly dehumanizing, right? You know, you have to ask, you know, during this process, you had the, the police were heavily involved. And, and right away, it was a question of like, well, why would the police be active participants in something where you're actually saying this is about decriminalization? It's not a law and order issue. It's a health issue. And yet the police were very much driving the, the agenda. Uh, you know, they wanted one gram even though their own data showed that, you know, two grams is an average. And so quite clearly, they were saying, we want enough that we can incarcerate most drug users. And then somehow Health Canada, the province and the city were all just openly welcoming, wel welcoming them into the process and giving them what they want. Um, so you have to question whether this is a, a decrim initiative. Um, so, so going into that, how was that two and a half gram threshold? What was the negotiation process for that like? And how was that ultimately decided upon? So it was a long process in 2021. Uh, some members of, of our group uh, and some members of Pivot Legal Society and other groups uh, and the police and health professionals uh, were put into a kind of uh, panel, I guess it was called, where they would hash out and have these conversations. And, you know, when they started, you know, they, I, they didn't really mention thresholds and people just didn't even think about it. And then halfway through, it became this big issue. And so ultimately, you know, Vandu realized we had to do our own study and Thomas Kerr helped us conduct, you know, field research. And our, our position was basically thresholds are a problem as such, but we kind of said, you know, an upper limit of 18, we, 18 grams would be a maximal threshold at, in which, you know, drug users wouldn't be in jail. Uh, and we tried to get, you know, the province and the city to kind of got, get on board with us because they had said they agreed with decrim. And at the end of the day, they went for a very low amount of 4.5. But then once that got to the feds, then they brought it back. They brought it down further to 2.5. And yeah, like I said, the VPD wanted one. Um, so on the one hand, the VPD didn't get everything they wanted. But on the other hand, the VPD has a very clear direction to continue criminalizing large numbers of, of people. So it's we've seen like Vandu members actually have a sharp memory of, of something parallel because we fought against, you know, in the lead up to the Olympics, there was jaywalking tickets and bylaw infractions being thrown out left and right. And our members all were getting these huge tickets. Vendors were getting their stuff, you know, taken away and they're getting ticketed for vending. And so we fought hard against that successfully. And yet, the kind of whack-a-mole, you know, the, the the next step was that the VPD would just do confis confiscations without giving a ticket. And they would do shakedowns without a ticket. So, you know, no paper trail. Um, so, you know, on, on this question of 
criminalization, I'm, I think criminalization is not just getting a criminal charge and going through the court system. Obviously, it is that. But it's also just a whole range of interactions with the justice system. So, I mean, even if people are below the th threshold in many cases or some cases, even that changes the context of what it's like to be a community me member in your, you know, in your daily life, you're just constantly getting stopped now. Uh, you know, so these are things that we kind of anticipate and are worried about. Sure, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, because it, it opens up that whole normalization of, well, we're checking them, we got to check the amount. And then it, it's like, exactly. yeah, it, it kind of yeah. reminds me of carding in Toronto for young black yeah. men, especially and yeah 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 we got we got 100 new v vpd officers about to hit you know hit the street so what what you know what are they going to do other than you know to crack down on this so-called you know law and order hysteria that they've managed to whip up during the election so it's not a great it's kind of a perfect storm for a Toronto type carding situation. I mean, not that we don't already have that here, but um, you know, exactly. And and yeah, just to reiterate, like the the racial and colonial context. I mean, the people who are getting stopped, the people are getting pulled over. I mean, it's not just anybody. You know, it's very specific patterns of of profiling and and um, you know patterns of of incarceration that are have clear historic trajectories from the very beginning of Vancouver into the present which is indigenous people of color and black people are way more likely to get stopped way more likely to get charged it's just you know something that we tried to bring up in the process and the VPD were very insistent that they have no structural racism there's no issue you know, this is going to be, you know, uniformly applied. This is colorblind, all these things that you're used to hearing. Yeah, definitely, definitely the case. And another thing that um, I'm thinking of that, that also came up when with my uh, discussions with uh, HIV network member was about kind of the change also in the prosecutorial style after this with once you have this this kind of threshold where it it almost seems like how they're dividing people is by kind of people who are dealing above the threshold and then people who are using below the threshold. Is that something you anticipate as well? Yeah, for sure. And what's interesting, what's really kind of fascinating from like a legal perspective is until now, um, thresholds and amounts alone were not actually enough to make a... a a purpose of trafficking or trafficking charge. Um, there's all these rulings in case law, you know, where the judge is saying, you know, trafficking is, you know, there's a whole number of, you know, reasons, uh, or there's a whole number of criteria for what would be trafficking. I mean, and there was no clear uh, threshold differentiation between possession and trafficking. It was very complicated. Um, so now, yeah, basically what's going to happen is who is a trafficker it's going to the, the network the, the the web of, of that definition is going to get widened 
and the discourse around trafficking is ramping up so that the, the drug dealers is is the new kind of enemy and and the drug user the modest drug user is is the victim but you know it's just so much more complicated than that i mean yeah yeah so can you elaborate on that because i think for a lot of people who are not familiar with the minutiae of these issues that's a real question right i mean the user versus the versus the dealer it can be easy for us as a society to fall into that false dichotomy so if you could flush that out a bit more I think one thing I would definitely say is right off the top how we're we're talking about um, what it's like to want safe supply for the people that you love. I mean, uh, in that context, when people are dying from overdose, I mean, people are not just interested in getting access to safe supply, but actually, like this is like one of their highest priorities is like making sure their friends aren't dying um is that now a dealer i mean if you know they may be in possession of large amounts i mean in some ways yes they're dealing you know so it's like it's very uh complicated but, but yeah i mean i refer to that i think like the the structural reality of the drug trade is like it's a highly hierarchical you know a hi highly hierarchical structure but it draws in a huge number of low-income people who have no other options. And it's really interesting uh, if you want to try to understand, like, over time, like, how class segmentation has worked and, like, how low-income communities have been brought into the drug trade. It's, it's a way more structural and, like, embedded you know, in ways that people really aren't ready to acknowledge. So, you know, like if if you want to make the drug dealer the one who's evil, I mean, you have to create this idea that somehow they just completely come out of nowhere. They have no history. They have no family. They have no background. They're just these opportunistic, you know, like uh, vultures or something. But it's funny because all of the stuff around tainted supply and all of that is directly about prohibition. I mean, like even fentanyl, like let's just leave everything else out. Like fentanyl comes into the supply because to, you know, prohibition is clamping down both internal and at the border. Fentanyl is this new way of evading uh, drug seizures. But the thing is, you've got this like tiny um, substance that can now, that's now way harder to measure that can accidentally get into other, you know, cross contamination um, and that gets used to boost other substances that are not sufficient or that are fake or whatever. So like to try to to try to understand even uh, the tainted drug supply without understanding prohibition, it actually makes no sense. Um, and, and I think by extension, I mean, the drug dealer as the kind of highest evil. And, and this is a real issue because you've got people who, you know, are getting life sentences because they uh, accidentally sold someone fentanyl and told them it was something else 
Um, on the one hand, if you're a dealer and you're not checking all your stuff, you do have an ethical responsibility. And that's why so many people become ethical substance use navigators to try to, you know, distribute safe supply. But it's like you're, in, you're also like the amount of variables and factors that go into this, like it's just very complicated to, you know, and, and but people aren't willing to step back, including the Ministry of Health and everyone who says that they believe in decrim, they stop very short, you know. Yeah, I think I mean obviously we've we've criticized it a lot. I mean, and and there's a lot where it, of places where it comes up short. Where do you think, if anywhere, there's places to look for kind of potential success when, within the next three years or so? I think at the level of discourse is maybe the biggest victory here, and maybe take like a a perspective on just you know some of the positive aspects of changing people's minds about the drug war, you know, um, I do worry if, if, if anyone thinks that this is going to help with reducing overdose deaths or any positive effects, nothing like that. So I, I do worry that after three years, you know, this overdose crisis continues. You can imagine a lot of politicians saying like, oh, well, that didn't work, uh, on to, you know, like, let's, go back to criminalization or whatever um so yeah there's a lacking literacy or around it and but um yeah in terms of positives i would just say you know planning the idea that you know decriminalization is a good thing um but that said it's also becomes a way of evading you know safe supply but um, but I would also point to, to this question, like how valuable is that? Because, you know, 10, 15 years ago, politicians did start talking about homelessness. This is a real problem. We need to end homelessness. People campaign on ending homelessness, uh, and they still do. And it's in the discourse that, but it's almost a substitute, like, you know, I do worry you know, the more they're able to talk about decriminalization, the less they actually have to do. So, and, you know, Garth Mullins on Crackdown podcast uh, is a great critic of, of these kind of, you know, not just mealy mouth, but like discursive games that get played. So it is hard to be completely positive, but yeah, that's my attempt. Yeah, especially looking back uh, after three years, if if nothing changes with that during that time, I think you can definitely see a lot of people pointing to, yeah, well, that didn't work. Well, we, we have to go back to yeah. prohibition. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a moving target, too. Like, you can imagine any number of situations, like new substances, like new crises. I mean, like, getting hit with COVID, it was like, you know, all these problems we hadn't even thought about. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a matter of like also disaggregating or separating out all the different policy aims, I guess. Uh, 
but realizing that this decrim as such is already limited, but then this 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 uh, version of it is especially constrained. Yeah. And is there anything else you want to let people know about this law or kind of decriminalization or or what's happening in in Vancouver right now generally? I think I already made this point, but maybe uh, around. Um, there was a really good paper actually published about Australia and their experience with some forms of decriminalization. And I don't have it in front of me, but I think the term that they used was net uh, widening the net or something like that. So even though there's this, you know, even though there was this new lifting of some prosecutorial guidelines you create these clear directives and then actually what happens is more people get captured in, in the net of, of the criminal system. So I, and I already made that point, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Nathan. It's obviously not an easy subject to navigate. So I really feel like I learned a lot just in talking with you about this and I'm very grateful. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you all so much for listening. Stay tuned for part two, where we continue this conversation and discuss advocacy in law school.